And uh, I'd like to ask you please to turn to Luke chapter 11, which is where we've got to in our long series on the book of Luke. We started this last September and we'll still be doing it in August. Uh, We've got as far as Luke chapter 11. Just to recap the story so far, uh, the story begins with, thank you, uh, with Jesus' birth and goes on to talk about John the Baptist who's preparing the way for Jesus. And then we have the story of Jesus' temptations in which he battles with the devil and wins. The story of his baptism in which he receives the son of pleasure, words of uh, endorsement from the Father from heaven and receives the Holy Spirit and then sets about doing miracles and preaching. Uh, Today's passage is more of the same, doing a miracle and then explaining what happened. Along the way, he picks up disciples whom he trains to become apostles being sent out, and they start doing the same sorts of things. And those are the stories that we've read over the last six months or so. When we got into Luke chapter 11, just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus took things a step deeper in explaining the dynamics of the kingdom that he was bringing and that he enabled others also to bring. He explains about prayer. This week, we get another explanation that goes further under the surface. And this is all about living free from evil. It's about Satan and demons and what on earth is going on there. That's our subject matter for this morning. So I'm going to read in Luke chapter 11 from verses 14 to 28. Jesus, this is the miracle, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Now, of those two things, this question about Beelzebub and the sign from heaven, the rest of our passage this morning deals with the Beelzebub bit. And in a couple of weeks' time, the other side of Easter, the next passage looks at this asking for a sign from heaven. So we're not going to do much with verse 16 this morning, but we're going to follow through what Jesus says about this accusation that he's working by the power of the prince of demons. Verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. 
Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. These teachings, now it's like a a string of pearls, a whole bunch of uh, precious things that Jesus says one after another. And he goes on to say, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Then, again, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, waterless places, seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then... It goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and Obey it. So there's quite a lot there, isn't there? But I think we're going to enjoy getting to grips with it. The first thing to say is just to underline, this began, this story kicks off with something really happening. This came to mind. This was happening here just last Sunday Uh, Those of you who know Roger Cole, who is the minister at Henley Baptist Church, and Henley Baptist Church were with us last week, will not be at all surprised that at the end of the meeting, Roger was at the front with people sat on a chair and doing this. This is a, you know, your back's out of place. If we lift your feet up, we can see just how out of place things have become. And as we pray, we can see whether anything gets shifted back into place. That was happening here last Sunday. We talk about legs growing, but I mean, it's about bones and tissues and things falling into the right place and healing actually happening. Healing going on. It's something that goes on in God's church around the world. The point here is that it's the story starts with God's miraculous power. It doesn't start with Jesus talking something up and then eventually getting round to praying It starts with the miraculous power of God, and then there's something to talk about. That is the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. Our instinct, at least for many of us, probably the overwhelming majority of us, our instinct is to start with talk, then maybe to bring up the subject of faith, if things are going well, And then maybe, if that's gone well, to get round to suggesting that we pray. Jesus starts somewhere else. 
he begins with this power encounter. And, and isn't that what we want? Isn't that how we would like our lives to be? This passage comes straight after Jesus' teaching about prayer. And in his teaching about prayer, he says, pray, your kingdom come. And I guess that if we find that we're never talking about faith outside of church, then it would be good to turn back to that earlier part of chapter 11 and pray, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Because if nothing's happening, then there's not a fat lot to talk about. It's just a bunch of words. In 1 Corinthians, in chapters 4 and 14, Paul writes about these dynamics. In 1 Corinthians 4 and uh, verse 20, he says very straightforwardly, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. It's not a matter of talk, but of power. And then later in 1 Corinthians 14, where he's talking about the way in which God's power is made manifest in the church, he says, if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone's prophesying, they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. There's something here about being on the front foot with an expectation of God's power at work to see things change. I uh, was sat yesterday afternoon in a cottage on the edge of the Cotswolds with Bev's family. Bev's sister is just over from Canada for a bit, and we were swapping stories, not having seen each other for a year or so. We were talking about fasting. I'd been fasting. They'd been fasting in their family, and they they moved to Canada five years ago. They have a house in Bristol that they've been trying to sell and haven't been able to sell and need to sell. And a little while ago, um, my brother-in-law said, well, I'm going to fast a day a week until we see something shift. That was just recently. Within a couple of days, not having had anybody view the house, they had 10 people view the house. And they've now got two people who aren't in a chain at all Uh, outbidding each other above the asking price. And uh, many of you will have heard, I mean, just a year ago, Bev and I had a similar blessing and experience of God answering us as we fasted and prayed. We were looking to move house for a bunch of reasons, and we couldn't afford anything in the part of the city where we were looking. And so we fasted for a few days, and we prayed. And on the second day, the house price fell by £20,000, the house that we are now living in, so that we could afford it. And when these kinds of things happen in our lives, we've got something to talk about. We've got something to explain. Because the house that we bought is just 100 yards down the road from another house, which sold a few months later for £50,000 more than we had to spend. And so it has been a matter of conversation amongst our neighbours. How come? That happened. And then we can, we can explain something remarkable that's taken place. Many of you know that I set myself to a more prolonged period of fasting over the last few weeks. And I've just seen one thing after another happen. Um, financial blessings, uh, 
Uh, the legal situation that this building stands in has been an, an issue that's been an issue for eight years that got resolved, um, nearly resolved. We need some paperwork. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, answers favour coming out of nowhere. I've had half a dozen things of that kind happen. And I can say, look, look what's happened. And when people say, well, that's a bit of a surprise, I can say, well, you know what? I was fasting and praying, and there's evidence that God's on our side. He's here with us, supporting us. And it's a natural thing to come up in conversation. I met a friend for coffee this week. It's just we end up talking about how God's answered prayer because he has. And it would be easy for us to jump into looking at this teaching that we're about to get to about Satan and Beelzebub and demons in waterless places and all of that and get absorbed in the, the thinking and the ideas. We need to remember that it begins with a demonstration of God's power. And without demonstrations of God's power, we won't, there's not much point knowing about any of this stuff. Interestingly, no one questions whether a demon has really gone out of the man who was healed. They don't, the crowds don't question whether Jesus has pulled a trick. They don't question whether a miracle has gone on, but they question what the source of Jesus' ability really was. Actually, they don't ask Jesus a question, but they form their own explanation And I don't know if you're familiar with Heath Robinson um, sort of contraptions, which are just fun depictions of things being far more complicated than they need to be. But the kind of explanations that they come up with are Heath Robinson kind of explanations that that are more complicated than make sense. And Jesus is able to refute their thinking very simply by just simple statements provoking them to be a little bit more sensible. We'll look in a second at what it was that he said, but we need to take a slight little um, detour to look at this name of Beelzebub. It sounds very much like it should be in cinema these days or some kind of horror film, or I don't know what the name sounds like to you, but there are two names that Jesus uses in his reply. He uses the name Satan, and then this other name, Beelzebub. Satan is a Hebrew word, which means the accuser. And in the Old Testament, the forces of evil are sometimes described as, there's the serpent in the book of Genesis. Leviathan, this great sea creature that symbolizes chaos and destruction. And then in the book of Job, there is this, a revelation of a court, like a royal court in heaven with God on the throne and the angelic creatures around him in a heavenly court. And Satan, the accuser, steps in and acts like the prosecutor of criminals and says, aha, there is someone. And I said, I've been going around looking for people that deserve accusation and God says yeah well there's Job isn't there you can't accuse him of anything and saying as well let's have a go let's see if we can't find something to accuse this man of Satan means the accuser and that name was picked up 
by the people of Israel as the one who opposes them, the one who is set out to intrude on their relationship with God and make life difficult. That's where the name Satan comes from. This name Beelzebub comes from a different place. It's actually a pun. It's come from, uh, just to be clear, uh, the word in Greek is Beelzebul. I don't know quite when in history someone changed it to Beelzebub in English translations, but clearly people have liked that because it's stuck. But it literally says Beelzebul. And there was a Philistine god called Baal-zebul. You might read the name Baal as the god of the Philistines at many places in the Old Testament. But one of the gods that they had was Baal-zebul, which in their language meant... So Baal means lord or prince, and Baal-zebul meant lord of lords or prince of princes, the most exalted lord. But in Aramaic, if you changed it just a little bit from Baalzebul to Beelzebul, instead of meaning Lord of Lords, it meant Prince of the Dung Heap. Instead. Or Lord of the Flies. And so the Jews changed the name and used this name Beelzebul to have a laugh and to pull down the honor that the surrounding nations ascribed to their idols and their gods and said that they're not really what you're saying they are. They're actually a bit of a joke and they're actually detestable and you, sh- you don't want to be following them. They came to see that the pagan gods around them were actually demons. And because of the history of this word Baalzebul, as meaning the Lord of Lords, the the God of Gods, and they're changing it to Beelzebul to mean, ah, this is a detestable, useless person. Uh, Amongst the Jews, this name Beelzebul came to be their way of speaking of the prince of demons. That's where it comes from. And so in the same way that Satan in the Old Testament was seen to be some kind of higher up evil force that got to step into the royal courts of God and cause trouble there, these different names got put together, Satan, Beelzebub, to describe the same kind of reality. Now, That's about as much clarity as we're going to get on these different names for the devil. We will seek in vain a neat explanation of how Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, fallen angels, Lucifer, Leviathan, unclean spirits, all of those different words, we will search in vain for a neat explanation of how they all fit together how they all relate together. There is no, depending on which generation you live in, there is no who's who of demons, or there is no Wikipedia for demons. There's nowhere that we can go where it's all laid out neatly. It's not like that. We don't need to know. 
What is clear, two simple points. There are demons and there really is a prince of demons. Those are the two clear points. And that prince of demons, that prince of demons is sometimes called Satan, sometimes called the devil, and occasionally, as here, called Beelzebub. What this tells us is that as we hope and expect in Christ to live free from evil, we're not just talking about some psychological process. The reality of evil is greater than the dark parts of the human mind. There is a spiritual reality beyond our thinking that exists independently of us. We can't explain these biblical references to demons as merely psychological, as the first century's way of talking about human distress. If I could put it this way, uh, you can take the Bible out of the first century and into the modern world, but you can't take the first century out of the Bible. We, we can bring it into our daily lives, and I hope we do, but what we bring into our daily lives has the indelible mark of first century ways of speaking, and we can't do away with that. We can't explain that away. And as Christians who follow Jesus and treat his word seriously, we have no option except to embrace this truth that there are indeed demonic powers at work. However little we understand of that, it remains the truth. There is a prince of demons, lord of the dung heap, lord of the flies. So, returning to Jesus' words, as I said, he knows that they've got these Heath Robinson-type explanations that don't stack up, and he demolishes them very straightforwardly. He says, look, on the one hand, if Satan and all of these demons, if they, if they were fighting against one another, they wouldn't have lasted. A house divided against itself doesn't stand. This reality of demonic battle has been going on for generations and generations. It would not be so if they'd been fighting against each other. So this also shows us that this idea of a household or of a kingdom, uh, it underlines the fact that, yeah, there really is a prince. Of, there's someone, it's not just that there's a whole... I think my battery is a little bit wobbly. Um, it's not just that there is just like this whole horde of demons like a chaotic mob, but there is amongst them some order. The prince of demons imposes some kind of authority upon them, and it also makes it clear to us that these forces of evil consistently fight against good. They don't fight against each other. So he demolishes that very straightforwardly. He says, look, no house fights against itself. Secondly, he points out that the very people who were accusing him of casting out demons by Beelzebub uh, themselves value, they have disciples who cast out demons. And basically, this is hypocritical. Interesting, though, that Jewish people 
disconnected from Jesus, were going around driving out demons. This wasn't just something that Jesus did. Now, I don't know about you, I find that raises a few questions in my mind. I've done a little bit of digging on your behalf, trying to find out what people have said to make sense of that. The Jewish historian Josephus, who is generally reliable, I mean, it's not scripture that he writes for us, but he's a generally reliable historian, explains it this way. And he says, when Solomon asked for wisdom from God, God gave him such wisdom that people traveled from all the nations around just to listen to what he had to say. He could describe all the, the physical things, plants and animals, and he knew what to do with justice and so on. And Josephus says, and, this isn't recorded for us in the scriptures, but Josephus says, and God revealed in this download of wisdom that he gave to Solomon, God revealed to Solomon how to cast demons out from people too. And when he died, people could learn, they, they learned from Solomon how it was you go about doing that, and they carried on doing that up until Jesus' time. And that was evidence that somehow or other, the knowledge of how to do that uh, had come down into Jesus' time. Now, I'm not going to go on that tangent this morning and sort of talk out the whole thing of, so, okay, so how is it that this ministry works? How is it that people are released from demons, or what we sometimes call deliverance? Because about a year ago, I took a whole Sunday morning on that. If you're interested, you can look online from last spring there was a, a, a talk entitled How to, I think it was How to Help Others Get Free. And, and if you're interested, you can go and look that up. So Jesus says, A house divided wouldn't have lasted. You value others who drive out demons. So look, it's nothing to do with the power of the devil. He explains it very simply, and he says, I do this by the power of God who is stronger. He says, I have engaged in battle with the devil and I have won. That's how come I can do this. As I've read already from 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of Christ is not a matter of talk, but of power. And the straightforward truth is that Jesus is stronger than any power of darkness. Jesus is stronger than the devil or Beelzebub or whatever we call him. Now, you might ask, hang on, so when did this victory occur? Did, was the victory won when Jesus overcame the devil's temptations? Was it when he was baptized? Was it when he was crucified? Did he visit hell on Easter Saturday between Good Friday and Easter morning? Was it when he was resurrected or indeed when he ascended into heaven? Now, this... This passage doesn't say, and the right answer is all of the above. Every single one of those encounters was a victory for Christ over the powers of darkness. This wasn't just one decisive moment in which they were, uh, the devil and Jesus sort of looked at each other across a battlefield for years on end and then had a bust up. There were ongoing encounters, what this teaches us is that at every single point, at every single point that Christ confronted the powers of darkness, he won. 
There was never a time when he lost. In his temptations, he won. At his baptism, he won. In every miracle of healing or deliverance, he won. In every miracle exercising his power over nature, he won. At the cross, he won. In rising from the dead, he won. In ascending to heaven, he won. In sending the Holy Spirit, he won. Again and again and again, the consistent message is that Jesus is the conquering king. He is the one who has power over every aspect of the work of the enemy. Reflecting on it years later, Paul wrote to the Colossians of this Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul wrote just before that, For this Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Our Jesus is powerful. One of the battles that goes on in us is that our expectation of... One of the ways in which the powers of darkness, Satan, the devil seek to limit us and quench us isn't just in the direct heat of battle but it's like soldiers shouting across a battlefield roaring with anger and trying to put fear into the hearts of their enemy and there are a number of us uh, even here this morning who Feel the intimidation and are hesitant to engage in battle, spiritual battle, that is, for fear of losing. And God wants to change that in us. Because when that happens, it's like the battle's lost before it's even started. We don't even engage in the battle. Can't see any point in engaging in spirit. And when I talk about spiritual battle, let me explain as clearly as I can what it means. It's really simple. Spiritual battle is consistent prayer for God's help. That's all it really comes down to. We don't have the power to overcome the enemy but in the name of Christ we do so we ask for God's help and through that victory is achieved we had a um, word from Steve 
this morning about waiting. Jesus taught his disciples about prayer, saying, sometimes it's, it's like the persistent widow uh, who knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked and called out and knocked and called out again and knocked. And eventually there was an answer. Jesus says, keep praying. Don't give up. Keep on praying. There will be victory. Some, some of us really need to hear that this morning because we, it's like our prayer life has just gone off the boil. It's like we've waited. We feel like we've waited long enough and it's come to feel for us like this is not a victory that's going to be gained. This, this territory, just, it, it just is under darkness and you know, we've prayed about it enough. Jesus says, I'm stronger. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor and divides up the spoils. Jesus is the stronger man. We just pray for a moment. Father God, I want to pray for brothers and sisters here who've given up the battle or who feel intimidated over starting the battle, who see, as it were, giants in the land and would rather hide than run into battle. I want to pray now, right now, Holy Spirit, that you would um, you'd like flick some switches in our thinking and feeling. And I pray that hope would begin to rise afresh against the giants of sickness and addiction and besetting sin and um, uncleanness of, of lust and gluttony and envy, of anger and unforgiveness, these things that, um, and, and that spirit of rejection where, where people just have settled into expecting to be on the edge, expecting not to be liked and valued, these things that maybe have given up on fighting. I pray in Jesus' name for us, your people, to rise up and to call out to you in prayer and to see victory, knowing that there is nothing, there is no one who can stand against Jesus Christ, who alone is Lord of Lords and against whom the enemies, the powers of darkness are arranged like so many flies on a dung heap compared to the Lord of Lords. King of Kings. Let faith arise in us afresh, I pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Set us free. Lord, thank you for your word which directs us 
and inspires us and lifts us. Lord, we choose to embrace the teaching of Jesus and to let it change us. With the help of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Now, in this string of pearls that we have in our passage this morning, there are three more. Three more precious teachings from Jesus on the same theme. Here's another one. You can't sit on the fence. You can't. Jesus says, verse 23, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Today, to be a cultured person in Britain, to follow British values well, uh, means tolerating difference and making sure that everyone gets a hearing. And yet the New Testament says, Jesus says, there is no middle ground. You're either with me or you're against me. Until the point when you choose to be with me, until that point you are against me. Until you begin to gather with me, you're not just a bystander or a spectator on a cosmic process. Until you're gathering with me, whether you are doing it deliberately or not, you are scattering against me. This is what the New Testament uses the phrase antichrist to mean. You're either in Christ or your antichrist. It's a strong language in a passage about the prince of demons. Now, let's understand this as well as we can. The key issue in the way Jesus describes this is not how kind or lovely people are, but how we relate to him. The difference between those who are in Christ and those who are anti-Christ is the response to Jesus. There are many, many people who are opposed to Jesus and yet are lovely. Lovely, lovely people, kind people, generous people, people who've done us tremendous favor. And yet Jesus says, They're not with me. They are against me. I want to put two words together in your thinking that may not have gone together before. And they are the words lovely and antichrist. There are many people who are lovely antichrist. That's the truth of it. It's not about how nice people are, but about the significance 
of our response to Jesus. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. John's word to us this morning was about giving God all that we are because he's worthy. That's the choice, to be with Christ and to gather with him. Now, the fact that we recognize this black and white, it's there a number of times in the New Testament. We have sheep and goats in the parable of the sheep and goats that get separated. Uh, Elsewhere, the New Testament talks about children of God and children of the devil. It's strong language. Now, the fact that that vocabulary is in the New Testament doesn't mean that we then go around condemning people. Uh, It's not the case that we as Christians should arrive at work, be greeted with a warm good morning from lovely people that we work with, and say to them, I revile you, Antichrist colleague, and reject all your devilish ways. That's not where this is taking us. That's right, you can keep your job. Rather, in this distinction of children of God and children of the devil, Jesus was the, and is the, Son of God, capital letters, and he was a friend of sinners. Or, to put it in this other vocabulary, Jesus was the Son of God and was a friend of the children of the devil. Sorry if I'm blowing a few fuses by putting these things together. I'm just joining up the dots of the different vocabularies used in different parts of the New Testament. Sinners are children of the devil. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus was, on, in the life that he lived out, he extended the offer of friendship to those who were against him. He went and ate with Pharisees who dissed him and thought that he was in league with the devil. They were anti-Christ and he went and ate dinner with them and showered blessing upon them. He even extended grace to the thief who abused him on the cross and the soldiers who nailed him to the cross. He extended grace and love and an offer of friendship but never lost sight of the fact that those people needed profound change. His words to those uh, uh, concerning those who nailed him to the cross was not, Father, let them, you know, just, ah, you know. He didn't, he said, Father, forgive them. He didn't say, Father, they've had a rough life. Don't worry about it said, Father, forgive them. There was a need for transformation in those individuals' lives. Jesus, even as he's being nailed to the cross, the Son of God extends love, compassion, and an offer of forgiveness to those who are against him. And Jesus says, look, there are two sides. Unlike the coming general election, where there seem to be more sides than ever, and Um, As we approach the general election, I hope we'll all be thinking about 
who we will be voting for and exercising that democratic right. But there remains an option at the end of the day not to vote. Not to vote. You, you can choose not to. I don't encourage you for a moment to, to hold back from voting. Um, but you can hold back from voting. There is no such option in this clash of kingdoms. Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you don't place your vote for Christ, then the default option is, is you're on the other side. If you, you don't have to fill in the ballot paper for the devil. If you don't fill it in, you're on his side. That's how it works. You can't sit on the fence. It's not the place to be. So that's an, there we go. Two more little pearls on the string. Here we go. When you gain new freedom, you need more to sustain that freedom. This is this thing about the evil spirit going out. It goes through arid places. Nothing lives in arid places. There's nothing living there. And so not finding any other living creature to oppress and destroy comes back round and looks again for the home that it was in. And this teaching is very straightforward. It says it's not enough to have a moment of release from evil. That won't, that's not enough. There needs to be something further that happens. And although it's not spelt out here what that something further is, the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that only with the infilling of the Holy Spirit, only, with the, only when we invite Jesus to come and take up residence in our home, are we then securely free. It ties in a little bit, doesn't it, to the parable of the sower, where new life can spring up, but not last, because other things get in the way. But there's an invitation to us to not only receive the word with joy when it first comes to us, not only to have that moment of freedom, but to invite God in to keep us growing, to keep us fruitful, and in that to find lasting freedom. So if this previous point uh, provokes the question of, do you have a decision to make? Do you need to... Uh, let go of some stuff, some dark stuff in order to be with Jesus. The question here is, have you received the promised Holy Spirit? Are you filled with the promised Holy Spirit? Promised to every Christian. If you're struggling with evil encroaching on your life, whether that's oppression coming from outside you or feeling like you're losing the internal battle to live rightly, live with Christian freedom, then there's a promise of the Holy Spirit coming to set you free, to live in you. And it would be great before we finish this morning to pray for every single person to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. And for some people... You need not just another little puff to help the sails fill their greatest extent, but you need, a, you need a major download of the life and power of God 
in order to see breakthrough. Here's the last thing, and I'm going to get Bev to come and say something about this. Um, The greatest blessing is found in submission to the word of God. This woman cries out, blessed is the mother that gave you birth. And Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Sue came and shared a word about us not giving up who we are, but giving up our will, submitting our will to what God wants from us. And Bev, would you read another microphone, probably? I'll ask Bev just to share something, because in recent months, this is something that she has seen much more clearly than before. Do you want me to ask you any questions, or you'll probably just be good to say something now, won't you? You can prompt me if I lose my way. Um, Yeah, a few months ago, um, just with different questions coming up, I was on a car journey, and uh, I wasn't driving. (laughs) Steve was driving, and I said to God in my heart, okay, God, why is submission an important thing? Because I kind of, you know, I get it, but you, you need to speak to me more clearly if this is really important. And I think I nodded off to sleep for five minutes. And um, I kind of, I don't know if you've ever had this, but I kind of had this download of information just as I was waking up in an in-between sort of place. I heard God just say very clearly to me, um, what was the most important thing that Jesus ever did? What was the most powerful thing I ever did? And I was like, wow, okay, that would be you dying on the cross then. And, uh, and he said, so what did I do in that moment? Um, and he said, and I, well, I said to him, well, you, well, you submitted everything. You submitted everything. And he said, well, what, who did I submit that to? And it was, well, it's to you, Father. It was to the Father, your God, the Father. But to, he also submitted everything to us here on earth. He, he bowed down and gave up his kingdom and his power and his, his person and everything that made him human and everything that made him God. He gave that up um, and died for us. And, and so, well, so why is submission important? Because... And it came clear to me in that moment that submission was important because it was the most powerful thing that was ever done on earth. And it was the powerful, most powerful thing that was ever done in history, in the universe. <laughs> That's why submission is important. And I think in that moment I felt, well, if we are meant to then look like Christ and he's asked us to be Christians, Christ ones, followers of Jesus, then he's asking us to be in a place of submission as well. And if we can't do that, if we're choosing not to submit our lives to him in whatever way he's asked us to, then we don't hold that most powerful thing that Christ did, that he's giving us the opportunity in our submitting like he did to hold an incredibly powerful thing in our hands. And I don't know quite what that looks like. I think it looks like different things for us. But in choosing to submit ourselves to Christ, we hold something immensely powerful. And that, like 
Christ could do something immensely powerful in bringing complete redemption to the world through his submission, then there is something incredibly powerful that he wants to do in us as we submit to him in the same way. Great. Cool. Give it back to Simon. And uh, I'm just going to finish, therefore. I mean, I, understand, I, I struggled a little bit with th- this morning, not in any profound way, but aware that this passage is like a bit of a string of pearls and there wasn't a kind of bop, you know, it, this is the point. There's, a, there's been a number of different things here. So in a moment, we're going to break bread and in that, there's going to be some space to reflect. And I'd encourage you to go, as we break bread, to go back and look at the passage and just see what it is that comes out back to you from that as the main thing that, that God is saying to you this morning. Um, I just want to read, as I finish, before handing back to Simon, these verses from Jesus' prayer on the Mount of Olives just before he was arrested. It says that he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond his disciples, knelt down and prayed. This is what he prayed. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet... Not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you've set us an example in every way. You've set us an example of victory and the joy that goes with seeing mute people speak and the deaf hear and people racked with guilt knowing they're forgiven and addicts set free. You've shown us what that looks like and you've shown us what this purity of submission looks like too. And Lord, if we can just reflect back a bit more of that glory as we spend this time in your presence with unveiled faces. If we can be transformed that bit more into your likeness, Lord, we would love that. We embrace your transforming work amongst us. Even as we now move forward to breaking bread. Amen.